0: Welcome to Trial Lawyer Review, a podcast for and about trial lawyers. We will tell the stories about trial lawyers who go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. This is about their stories and their practices. Hello everyone. I'm Jason Lazarus, your host for Trial Lawyer Review. Thank you for tuning in today for another episode. Trial Lawyer Review is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. In full disclosure, I'm not a professional podcaster. Instead, my day job is Chief Executive Officer of Synergy Settlement Services. Synergy allows trial lawyers to focus on what they do best by handling the difficult issues that arise at settlement, like troublesome lien resolution issues, Medicare secondary payer compliance, government benefit preservation techniques, in complex settlement planning. Joining me today on Trial Lawyer Review is Mark abra He's someone I'm proud to call a friend and have had the great privilege to work with over the years as he has skillfully represented his clients. He's an outstanding trial lawyer and partner with the abram and Smith Law Firm in Gainesville. His practice focuses on complex, catastrophic personal injury including motor vehicle accidents, medical malpractice, aviation accidents, tobacco litigation legal malpractice, as well as probate and trust litigation. And let me give you a little bit of background on Mark. Uh, he's a board-certified civil trial lawyer. He's been recognized by Law Dragon as one of the top 500 plaintiff lawyers in America and was named Attorney of the Year by Courtroom View Network in 2019. Mark's professionalism and dedication to his work as a trial advocate are reflected by his induction and membership in EBOTA, and the International Society of Barristers. Uh, I could go on and on because he's got a very impressive CV, but want to get to the, the heart of the matter, which is talking to Mark. So Mark, welcome to Trial Review. So glad you could join today.
1: It's a pleasure to be with you, Jason. Thank you.
0: So before we get into the uh, practice of law stuff, I, I know that you're a pilot and love to fly. What is behind that passion for aviation?
1: it 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 had like most things in my life um came from my dad who, in the sixties and seventies uh was a private pilot. um I can remember sitting in the back seat with him um on some flights with um Whitaker um with uh, left maybe when they would take tri- uh, trips to um now a a j but back then it was atlas seminars around the country. I was one of the lucky ones that got to sit in the back with those guys and watch them fly the airplane. And so I loved that. And it came a time in my life in my 30s where I had some time and devoted myself to
0: getting my pilot's license. And I've been flying ever since. Yeah, when I, uh, when I first graduated from law school, my my first job out of law school was doing med mal defense work. And the, the firm I was with here in Orlando, they were flying all around the state in little Cessnas. And uh scared the heck out of me. I, I, it's impressive to me that uh, that anybody is willing to, to get up in the air and, and I, you know, it's funny because I, I do things that are risky. I think, you know, I'm a cyclist and you know, got it by a car. So I do things that are risky, but it just seems like there's there's so many things that can go wrong and if they do go wrong, it's, it's gonna go wrong pretty badly, especially with all the, the bad weather here in Florida. I remember several times dodging big thunderstorms in, in those little Cessnas in the summer. I can
1: make the argument, Jason, that I'm safer in my airplane than you are on that cycle.
0: Yeah, probably <laughs> probably so. I know that you've done some, some kind of public service work when you've flown. Can you talk a little bit about that? I, I In doing my research for the podcast, I, I heard that somewhere along the way that you've done some life flighting or, or done some things in, in that nature.
1: There was a, a time when a, a buddy of mine who, um, he had encouraged me to get my um, my twin engine license and then he wanted me to begin flying some assessment uh, Citation jets. And so a quick way for me to get some time was to approach the operator of the uh, medical transport company at the FBO in Gainesville who does a lot of the air transport flights for Shands, now Mayo, sometimes for Tampa General. And so I got, uh, went down to Orlando and did a week long course of study to be checked out in the Cessna Citation. Um, and a quick way to get hours was doing medical flights around the Southeast. So most of those nights were in the middle of the night. And so there were lots of days when I'd come into work with only a couple hours of sleep. And I built out close to 1,000 hours in citations, flying those and an Eclipse jet, uh, a smaller jet uh, that, that I flew for a friend for a while. Um, I, I enjoyed tremendously flying those organs, flying patients around the Southeast, but there came a time when I was just taking too much time away from my family. It was hurting my ability to be, um, efficient in the office without a lot of sleep. And so after, you know, a year and a half, two years that came to an end, but I sure enjoyed that time. All
0: right. So let's talk a little bit about the law stuff. With your dad, Bill, being a legendary trial lawyer in the state of Florida and in your local area in Gainesville, was there any doubt ever that you were gonna follow in his footsteps?
1: Uh, yeah, probably. Um, so when I was uh, a teenager, um, we lost my mom. She was a um, victim of a homicide and, and uh, my, my the assailant almost killed my sister. Um, when that happened, um, my interests changed pretty dramatically at that point because I'd already been working part-time at the sheriff's office in their communication center to make money. Um, Losing my mom happened at a time when I was working for the the sheriff's office. And so rather than following in my father's footsteps, which was something that I think he had hoped for, um, my path took a different route and, and I went to work for the sheriff's office, you know, thinking I could make a huge difference in the lives of a lot of people, and I'd like to think that I did make a difference in the lives that of the people that I came in contact with, um, but I realized after some years there, you know, the, the nature of the impact that I could have on people's lives uh, could be greater doing what my dad uh, did at the time and had done over a 60-year career. Um, was lucky to see some of his trials as a deputy. You know, he tried one of the first cases against Honda for their defective three-wheel ATV. That that case started Dixie County in 1983 on December 7th, and so they started a trial on Pearl Harbor Day against uh, the Honda Corporation in Dixie County, Florida. You know, watching that and and realizing the impact that Dad had in people's lives of that nature, that's when I made the decision that I was going to follow him.
0: Now, I was gonna ask you about your, your service on the Alachia County Police Force, because uh, from again, from doing a little bit of research, um, from, from what I gathered, you put yourself through undergrad and even through your first semester of law school while working uh, uh, on the police force there, which is incredibly impressive to me. But having served the law prior to becoming a lawyer as a chef, sheriff's deputy, how did that influence or shape your views of the law? Uh,
1: you know, I, I I can say that you know my time in law enforcement you know led me to the conclusion that the law um, tries to get it right, but doesn't always end up being fair. And of course, we as trial lawyers you know we know that. Um, you know, lots of lots of people talk about large verdicts that. Um, lawyers uh, get sometimes in personal injury cases, but the stories that nobody talks about at all are those people that have suffered permanent injuries in, in motor vehicle accidents, and a uh, defense lawyer, skilled defense lawyer, convinces a jury there's no permanent injury, and that person leaves the courtroom with nothing, uh, only to you know suffer a lifetime of, of back pain or neck pain. Um, so I, that time in, in law enforcement um, you know, Working midnight shift, going to UF during the daytime, um, you know, I, I slowly came to the realization that I could be much more effective, um, you know, working with my dad. And I realized at the time I was um, with the law school in 1986, I was um, 25 at the time that I started. Uh, I knew I didn't have a whole lot of time left with my dad and that if I was going to practice law with him, if I was going to try cases with him, I needed to go ahead and, and start that journey. And I did
0: so if you could identify the single biggest reason for you making the practice of law your career and becoming a trial lawyer like your dad what 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 would that be um
1: <clears>
0: there <throat> wasn't any
1: one single um, event um, i knew i was going to be involved in the law uh, from an early age i just did not see law enforcement being part of my path until um, we lost my mom. Um, but over the years, um, and, and not so much things my dad came home and said. My dad wasn't one that would come home and, and bring the events of the day and, and, and talk about those things in in the household, nor should he have, probably. Um, but seeing people in the community and, and hearing how they spoke of my dad, particularly his clients, and how they would pull me aside and talk about what a difference he had made in their life. And my dad was, you know, when I started practicing with him, he was one of the dinosaurs. And I make and I and I say that in a um, complimentary kind of way because my dad tried everything. Um, you know, during the 1960s and early 70s, he had a verdict at one point that was larger than, than J.B. Spence, who was claiming the highest verdict of that type in Florida at the time, so they were going back and forth in a friendly manner on that. He tried uh, capital uh, cases as a criminal defense lawyer. He tried large divorce cases. He tried probate trust um, back in the 1960s. He did real property. He did all kinds of areas of law. And so while he was alive, and even more so after we lost him, you know, it's it's rare that a, a week or two goes by when somebody, you know, runs into me in the community and doesn't talk about my dad and and what he meant to them as a friend, what he meant to them as a lawyer who they had asked for help. And, and we get calls frequently from people whose names I don't recognize, who tells me that um, my dad was somebody who had helped me, the family needs help again, and would I help them? Um, when I hear that, Jason, that tells me that You know, when I saw what my dad was doing and the difference he was making in the lives of people, I look back and think, you know, I know I made the right decision. And certainly the effect that I have um, on the lives of my clients, people that now are my friends, it it convinces me that I absolutely made the right decision to to follow this path and this journey.
0: Well, And the firm that your dad started has become a family affair with you and your brother joining your dad. Uh, and now your daughter joining the firm as an associate why why is all of that so important to you um you know i, I i've
1: never uh, i never encouraged my daughters um, into any particular area of um, of work i just told them find that which makes you happy uh, my oldest uh, alex was convinced that she wanted to go to law school and and she sought that path and followed that journey and you know, I, I now know what it was like for my dad when I joined the firm in 1989. You know, I can remember him um, getting the the news uh, on the bar results over the telephone and, and sitting down um, the three lawyers in our firm or uh, clerks at the time who were, are awaiting bar results, uh, and and the look on his face when he turned to us and told us that we had all passed. I know now know that feeling, um, and. One of my daughters has expressed a desire to follow that journey and that path, and for the two years that she's now been with us, she's had the privilege of seeing the the uh, cases that we try and the outcomes that we that we attain and the difference we make in the lives of those families. She's been involved in more large trials in the first two years of her practice than I was probably in the first five to seven years of, of practicing law with my dad. So it it gives us great joy and, and and I know, uh, because I know the kind of person that she is, that that she's going to strive to make a difference in the lives of people. And it gives me great joy to watch her work.
0: Well, having had some interaction with her on some matters, I, I can tell that she's cut of the same cloth. So that's exciting to have your daughter there with you and, and be able to kind of, you know, help or reach her her. True potential as a trial lawyer there with your firm. That's that's just a cool thing. I think that that you have uh, that that opportunity with her. That's that's something special as a dad.
1: Yeah, thanks. Thanks. It uh, uh, realizing now how my dad saw things when I joined the firm. It uh, makes me smile to think about that.
0: So you are talking about you know her opportunity to to be involved with some pretty major trials. I wanted to ask you about one of your trials in particular, just because it is kind of widely publicized, and I think it's it's a good area for us to to explore and unpack a little bit, and that's the Weederhold. I'm pronouncing that correct, right? Yes. Uh, Weederhold versus Domino's, which was a, a catastrophic injuries case from a car crash caused by a Domino's delivery driver you try the case two different times, um, with almost the same result. First time, a $10 million verdict with 90, 10. Um, and then an 8.9 million, I think with a hundred percent, uh, the closing, uh, is on CBN, uh, lots of publicity. What, what are the top few reasons that you'll never forget that case? And why was it so important?
1: Oh, um, the first thing that comes to mind is, um, uh, Rich Wiedrehold, Um I first saw him, he was at Orlando Regional. Uh, it was the second time that I saw him. Um, about six weeks after he'd been discharged home, I drove to Orlando to spend a couple days there uh, visiting he and his wife, uh, Yvonne. And uh, having an opportunity, Rich was a, a ventilator-dependent quadriplegic. Um and Rich looking at me after Yvonne left uh, the room for a moment to get some uh, drinks or water or whatever. Um, and Rich looking at me and 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 asking me to, you know, help him end it. That he could not live his life that way. Um, you know, we we all we all think that handling these kinds of cases that we um, we certainly understand that we can't stand in the shoes of our clients, but we like to think that intellectually we have some idea. Uh, we can try to imagine what it might be like to be Rich Weederhold in these circumstances. Rich, Rich had been a phenomenally successful firefighter in Central Florida and Orange County and Brevard County. He was an instructor. You know, he attained ranks uh, with those various fire departments. He was a big guy, about six foot five, very proud. Um, And he he just could not, did not want to continue. And, you know, I dedicated myself in that moment to do everything that I could um, to see to it that he had everything that he needed, Yvonne had everything that she needed to take care of him in the manner in which he deserved. Um, I don't think I'll ever forget that moment. I can see it in my mind's eye right now as we're talking about it in in that bedroom. With Richard asking me what his options were and how I could help him
0: end his life. You know, that's something that uh, you know I think most most people don't really understand about what trial lawyers do and you know the the impact that they have, but also what you are exposed to in terms of the emotional impact and what it what it what it means for you to be able to take that emotion and then turn it into what you need to do to to get justice for that family. And I wanted to ask you about that because that's a really important thing, uh, I think for, to talk about And I talk about it with our our team here because they need to understand that, you know, it's not just a case, it is, it is, Mr. Weederhold, it's it's me after being hit by a car. It's you know and I, I always frame it for people when they join Synergy in terms of my accent, just so they, they can understand. And I always say, hey, what happened to me is, you know, minimal compared to, you know, a lot of our clients who are paralyzed, who are, you know, brain injured, um, lost limbs. Uh, all the you know, horrors that can, can be the end result of uh, a personal injury case, but being able to, to somehow connect with that and use that to get the kind of results that uh, are needed to, to make sure that person is taken care of. But I, I, I heard you, when I was doing my research for this podcast, talk about the idea of being emotionally in touch with yourself and I'm curious, with catastrophic cases, what are the top three things you do to kind of get connected or empathize with the client so that you can ultimately tell their story to the jury? And if you can connect that to Mr. Wiederhold that, that might make some sense here given what we've been talking about.
1: Yeah, I I um, I, I addressed this at the... Um, Workhorse in a session that I did uh, that John Romano asked me to do that, that kind of talked about the um, uh, getting in touch with oneself emotionally in order to be able to to represent the emotional component the the human damages component at a trial um, and what um, is entailed in that I I can remember um, you know everything that I do um, it's There's very little of it that Mark comes up with on his own. Most of it is um, an amalgam of of attending uh, academy, or now FJA, seminars and listening to the great trial lawyers that have come before me, listening to my dad, watching him in the courtroom, um, going to a courtroom, watching other trial lawyers try cases and learning how to do it, and perhaps just as importantly or more importantly, learning how not to do it by watching other trial lawyers I don't know how any of us can portray or communicate the the loss of a client um, in an injury case or the loss of a loved one in a wrongful death case without spending some time um, in trying to understand the nature of the loss. And of course, it's, it's different for, for all clients, but there are some common themes in, in just about all of them in a wrongful death case, there are lots of common themes that things of which people go through. I'll give you just one example. Um, So for a a spouse who has lost um, their spouse, it it seems to me that there is always a a point in time, it's after the funeral service, um, with all the family, all the food, all the people there, and there's typically somebody that's going to stay with them. For some days after everybody leaves, and typically that's a few days after the service, maybe a couple of weeks. But there's that one moment um, when the last person leaves. I don't know if that's a friend. I don't know if it's a sister or brother um, or a child, a grown child. But there's a moment when that door clicks, when that last person leaves, and they're there by themselves with a realization that their spouse is never going to walk in that door again. Describing that moment um, in the fashion that the client would describe it or does describe it on the stand, getting the jury ready for that moment um, in opening, um, I think is the only way that you can communicate the nature of the loss because all juries, all jurors come to trial. um, They get in the box during jury selection, and this is what I tell every client when I sit them down to prepare them for their deposition. That may be a month before um, their deposition and I may need two or three sessions with them. I may need five or six sessions with them to get them ready for their deposition. And that's getting them ready for trial as well. But when jurors come in, they intellectually understand when the judge reads the statement of the case that this is a case about uh, Bob losing his wife, Lisa. Lisa died in a motor vehicle accident on such and such a date. Everybody listening to this who tries cases will know what I'm talking about when that very bare-bones statement of the case is read. Intellectually, the jurors know, okay, I'm here because Lisa died and Bob is saying so-and-so was negligent, and that negligence was a legal cause of Lisa's death. Intellectually, they understand that. But at the end of a week, at the end of two weeks, if I've got six or eight jurors sitting there and, and all they understand my case at that point is an intellectual viewpoint, then I'm not going to get justice for that client. Over that week to two weeks, however long it takes to try the case, there has to be a transformation of that jury from an intellectual viewpoint to a viewpoint that is filled with empathy and understanding about what the client has gone through. By the way, I never call the client the client in open court. Um, Nobody uses that word outside the legal profession. I never call Uh, Bob, my client at trial, it's Bob or Mr. So-and-so, whatever the court will allow. Um, Hopefully, by putting Bob on the stand and and describing things in the moment, and and that means describing things actively, not in the past tense, but like they're happening to him right now, something that I think um, Jerry Spence was very much an advocate of, and pretty sure I learned that from one of his um, weekend sessions. Um, That jury goes from that intellectual understanding on the first day of jury selection to um, having empathy and emotionally understanding what Bob has gone through and what he will go through uh, for the rest of his life. From um, hearing a knock on the door and seeing outside and seeing two state troopers sitting there, to after the funeral services, to hearing that door click and realizing that he's there alone and Lisa will never walk in uh, the house again. He'll never touch her, sleep with her. Um, smell her hair. Um, Those are all the things that um, cause jurors to all of a sudden relate because regardless of what Bob's describing, their mind's eye is describing a similar scene. It doesn't have to look exactly like Bob's, but they've been through something similar and they are now embracing it, they are now associating with it, and they're now coming in line with our view of what the damages are. Um, It's been my experience that, that that has been far more successful than than um, how I thought I needed to do things uh, as a young trial lawyer, notwithstanding my dad telling me that there was a better way to do it.
0: So I know that you've been involved with uh, tobacco litigation, and that's, uh, you know, the David Goliath classic uh, fight, you know, fighting these big companies and its complex litigation. Um, are there a couple of ways in which you can identify that that experience has made you a better trial lawyer
1: Hmm.
0: Um,
1: identifying with that experience and being a better trial lawyer i can remember when um, the partner sat down um, i think it was in 2007 2008 uh, to talk about undertaking the engel cases and our decision that we would do so you know a lot of brave lawyers um, had, had gone before us and um, attain some some outcomes that made uh, us taking those cases possible, um, Stanley Rosenblatt in chief, um, but I have to say that uh, with due deference to my colleagues for the defense that defend um, the cases that we typically handle on a day to day basis, that's just another level of of litigation uh, in in tobacco. It, I, I know of no other litigation that is uh, as hard fought. Um, The tobacco industry has the best legal team that mankind has ever assembled, in my humble opinion. Um, They are formidable. And for us to put together um, for our first tobacco trial, uh, having the luxury of reading the transcript of a case that had just been tried a few weeks before ours, we were one of the early uh, trials in Alachua County, uh, Bobby Lohr and Matt Schultz had tried that case in Pensacola, and I got to read that transcript. Uh, Bobby was lead counsel, and Bobby was, um went to high school with Bobby in Gainesville. He's a Gainesville boy and went to work with Levin in, in Pensacola. Reading what Bobby had done in that case told us that what we had come up with, what we wanted to do to win our case, we were pretty much right on track for how to present our case. I can honestly say that um, trying cases with Rod and Don Um, Rod and Don are our lead counsel in tobacco, and I usually do the medicine. I do addiction, uh, cross the addiction experts, put on the medical experts. Rod, at this moment, is uh, in Miami doing a case um, with some lawyers that uh, asked for his help. I'm five times a better lawyer than I was before I started the Ingle litigation. It has just made me a better litigator. Um, I am a much better cross-examiner um, having watched how the tobacco lawyers do it sometimes. I mean, they, they put on in-house schools, I'm sure, on how to try cases and how to cross-examine witnesses. They have the resources to do that. Um, it, it's been, uh, I'll look back on my career whenever I'm finished doing this and and um, recall with relish um, those wins in tobacco and the few losses we have. I, I'll remember the nights you know, crying into my pillow, uh, losing those cases. Uh,
0: you spoke about a, uh, concept in a video that I watched and mentioned your dad, Um, and I, I was curious what it meant. You said courage with hope.
1: Uh, I'm trying to remember in which context I use that, that
0: phrase, but, um, representing clients and, you know, that admiring what they have to have in terms of fortitude to, you know, push the litigation, you know, that, that you're helping, obviously, uh, but that, 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 it,
1: it, it all stems of course, from preparation preparation, preparation, preparation. You're you're not going to get justice for a client without adequately preparing your case. And that's not something that Mark has come up with, obviously. That's um, something that I've heard over and over, over the decades from very successful trial lawyers. It should be no secret um, to any of the young lawyers that listen to this that um, preparation is necessary to to get the right outcome for your client, to get justice for them. Courage with hope, though. Um, I I use that phrase because of um, reflecting upon on those times as I approach trial and the anxiety that we all have. I think that's what makes me a pretty good trial lawyer is the is the um, the fear of failure. Um, I guess there are some that would tell me that a fear of failure is not that much of a healthy thing, but. I do think it makes me a better lawyer because it is the motivation um, to prepare adequately to represent my client. Um, here they are, pick your context, losing a spouse, losing a child, suffering a, a life-changing injury. They're, they're going through what they're going through with the courage to step into a courtroom at my side and stand in front of a jury and tell their story. Um, you know, who, who am I to have anxiety? Um, I would never want to trade places with them um, because of what they're having to go through. Um, The hope comes from um, the the concept that at some point during the trial, as I just described a few minutes ago, I am successful in bringing a jury who intellectually sitting there understands it's a wrongful death case because Bob lost Lisa in a tragic accident or because of a, a medical error. That at the conclusion of the case, uh, jurors are shaking their head in agreement to some comment that I make in closing because I have moved them from intellectually understanding why they're there and what the case is about to one of being emotionally connected with the client uh, because I've been successful in describing to them or having the client describe to them the nature of the loss, what they've gone through and what they'll likely go through for the rest of their life. Hope in that the jury will see things as we see it and return a verdict that reflects true justice for the client.
0: So uh, this is a question I I frequently put to guests of the podcasts. Um, I guess personally, I think it's important, which is the idea of how much the trial bar supports each other and what they do. and I know that you've you've been very involved with a bunch of different trial or associations like ABODA, FJA, um, et cetera. why are they important to you and you know what is it what what is it that you feel that it does for the profession? Um, today,
1: you know, I, I have a real concern about what the profession will look like when uh, ten years from now, um when when my daughter Alex um is is trying cases, you know, what it looks like in terms of the collegiality. So when I was growing up, um my dad was um one of the plaintiffs lawyers in Gainesville and there was a lawyer by the name of Joe Wilcox. Um Joe was the preeminent uh, defense lawyer um in our community and um We took vacations with the Wilcox family. You know, once a year, we would Joe would gather his wife and kids, and my dad would gather our family, and we'd go on a vacation uh, for a week out of the year. Even though they were litigating against each other, trying against cases against each other on a on a regular basis, Um, that doesn't happen much anymore. I'm sure it happens somewhere, but I don't see much of it. So. I view my participation in in organizations like FJA, um ABODA, where I'm far more uh, mingling with my colleagues on the defense side, or the International Society of Barristers, where I may see some colleagues in that organization that defend the tobacco industry, um, and talking about mentoring young lawyers, get, getting them to understand what professionalism means, um, civility and the oath that we take as as lawyers um, towards our clients, towards other litigants, and to our um, colleagues that are on the other side. Um, I don't know how we fix this problem other than becoming involved in organizations like this. So, in my in my work with um, some of these organizations, I am involved in trying to get young lawyers to come and join so they can see how lawyers that litigate each other um, interact with each other outside of the courtroom. Um, if I go out of state before the pandemic and and go to a, a deposition, if I fly in the day before to prepare the expert, I'll text the defense lawyer and, and see if they want to grab a drink or grab a bite to eat before the deposition the next day. Um, that's how it should be. Um, because we're so privileged to do what we do, um, not everybody can do what we do, and it just makes the litigating a case so much easier when you have that reputation of being easy to get along with, to be reasonable, but being a zealous advocate for your client. They are not mutually exclusive
0: yeah, you know it's interesting i um i I think you know I do um a little bit of Lean reduction work here in Florida with Medicaid and we do that at the Division of Administrative Hearings and fairly recently I had the ALJ at the end you know compliment both lawyers on their professionalism and how they approached the hearing and I've you know had that before and I take great pride in the idea that I can you know when I'm in my role as a lawyer in my law firm that when we're adverse we can still be professionals and go about our job in, in a way that's respectful to the law and to the parties. There's just, that's not mutually exclusive, shouldn't be. And all too often is. Yeah. I, so um, I, I know we're kind of running out of time, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, trial school. I previously had uh, Rich Newsom on the podcast and so he talked all about it and you know i i'm familiar with it i'm curious and i'll I'll let you decide how you want to answer this either top tier three reasons for instructing other trial lawyers or the top two or three things that you think are important that you've been able to communicate through trial school so you take your pick on how you want to answer that
1: you know richard has asked me a couple of times and because of you know schedules and being busy i haven't been able to be involved as much as i would like to initially but I'm now scheduled to be involved in some workshops where I'm mentoring uh, other lawyers along with some other um, faculty from trial school. So it's for the same reason that I just discussed. Um, So mentoring these young lawyers is just not talking about themes for your case and effective means of cross-examination, performing direct, opening, closing, et cetera. There has to be a component to all of this about professionalism and, and civility. And, and discussing how you interact with um, opposing counsel. Um, they're missing out if you're not talking about that, at least to some degree. So um, it, it'd be a little hypocritical of me to say that I really want to make a difference in the lives of some young lawyers in terms of mentoring them in organizations such as FJA, ABODA, International Society, et cetera, and have an opportunity to mentor some um, in this context of trial school and not take an opportunity to do it. I'm looking forward to
0: it. So as we kind of wrap up, is there one tip in particular you would give to other trialers that's part of your secret to success in the practice of personal injury law, something that we haven't already touched upon? <laughs> Boy that I could probably come up with a long list for that, but
1: I um the one thing that I that I um harp on with our our associates and, and, and young lawyers is uh, just to remember that although you are professional you're in a service industry um, I, I interact with people all the time that have had bad experiences with other lawyers or law firms where the lawyer wouldn't call them back um, so I don't care if you're um, a plumber I don't care if you're an electrician I don't care if you're a doctor a lawyer when people call you you ought to call them back Or if you can't call them back that day, get word to them about when you win, we'll call them back. Um, You know, I I tell uh, new clients all the time that, you know, if I I do what I'm going to do, and that is to give you 150% and do my very best to get the best outcome for me, you may go tell two or three people over the years that you run into that have been in an unfortunate circumstance and you think I can help them. Hey, call Mark because he did a great job for me. But if I don't return your phone calls and and uh, ignore you for weeks at a time or don't keep you informed about your case or explain to you in layman's terms about what your options are and how things can go, um, that client's going to tell 20 to 40 people, don't hire that guy because he won't return your phone calls. Um, so I, I I try to never forget that. And uh, if I know I owe somebody a phone call, I get a level of anxiety that I need to call them back because I don't want them thinking that I'm that lawyer, the one that doesn't call clients back. Sounds silly, but I know so many people just don't do it.
0: That's very true. Uh, so last question, uh, one that I I typically pose last. Uh, admittedly, it's, it's a bit of a self-serving question, uh, but having worked with you over the years, I'm curious as to what keeps you up at night when you're settling cases and you know, what I'm thinking along the lines are, are the things that we deal with, which is protecting government benefits, dealing with Medicare liens. What, what, what are the things that keep you up at night when you're settling the case? Those, those sorts of complexities. Well, I have one right now where I've settled with, with one of the
1: providers in a medical malpractice case, and there's very good reason to settle and, and go to trial without this provider. But um, the 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 client has extraordinary medical bills. Um, she's got disability policy that has a lien. You got Medicare, Medicare supplement policy, all have liens, and I got to figure out how to make that happen. Hopefully, on a pro rata share, so that down the road, where we collect more, we can address the liens again. I can remember my dad telling me when we first started practicing you know, the back in the 80s, that you know, liens weren't really an issue. You settled a case. The the fees and costs and clients portion were all distributed and that was the end of it. Not anymore. And and I'm just, um, I have a hard time keeping up with everything that I have to keep up with, the day-to-day practice, the changes in the law, changes in, you name it, um, with the new courts that we have and, and new appellate judges and the district courts and the Supreme Court trying to keep up with the changes. And now I've got to figure out how to address the liens in a manner that benefits the client. So. That's where I rely upon you, Jason. That's the kind of stuff that does keep me up at night. And there are a lot of things that keep me up at night about the practice of the law. That's definitely one that's close to the top of the list.
0: Yeah, you know, it, it's just such a, a, a crazy expectation to think that as a lawyer, when your specialty is being a trial lawyer, to, to understand the nuances of Medicare and lien resolution and, and all these different issues that really are our specialties because it's sort of like the idea of you know you, you could open up an estate right you you could do guardianships but yet there are specialists that you refer that work to instead of doing it in your own practice because it's it's a specialty or you know some firms have people that do those practice areas within their firms but i'm just saying you know, the expectation of of having that kind of broad knowledge base especially when you get into you know the the nuanced area of ERISA or FIBA or you know some of these more complex areas of lien resolution it, it really is so highly specialized it's it's difficult for for any lawyer to do what they do and really focus on what they do best which is you know one of our tack lines uh, because you know your job is is to secure the best possible result for your client get them justice not you know be an expert in ERISA liens or you know, how to, how to effectively deal with those issues. So, uh, appreciate that answer. Um, I I know that your, um, practice is not necessarily limited geographically, but if, if, you know, someone listening to the podcast has a case, they want to refer to you or wants to co-counsel a case with you, given your, your background and expertise, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? So, um,
1: our website is uh, www.avra.com, uh, where you can find us there. The the office in Gainesville is easily uh, locatable using uh, Google. And geographically, Jason, we obviously, we're in Miami right now. As I mentioned, Rod's down there right now on a tobacco case. We're all over the state. We've tried tobacco cases and other cases from Pensacola down to Miami. Um, I just finished a case in uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina. <laughs> I just got admitted to the North Carolina bar, um Thursday of last week. Um, And so now I'm doing a lot more cases in North Carolina, but I've handled them pro hoc in Georgia and South Carolina as well. And for the right case, you know, happy to travel, happy to help. I've established some wonderful relationships with lawyers around the Southeast, um, you know, working on cases for deserving clients and truly privileged to have involved in
0: that. Well, for anybody that's listening, we'll put links in the Uh, podcast website uh, page to Mark's webpage and his contact information there for anyone that wants to get in touch. Uh, Thank you to Mark for being my guest today, and we'll see everybody on the uh, next episode of Trial Law Review. Thanks for having me, Jason. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to Trial Law Review. You can find more at triallawreview.com and look for more episodes and more content coming in the future.